You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Hosea. Here's Nate. Well, the book of Hosea is a book that includes the story of one-sided love. What we have in the book of Hosea is the story of God's love for the people of Israel. He cared for them, he blessed them, he had provided for them, he had nourished them, he had brought them out of their slavery. But slowly but surely, over time, their response of love for him began to erode to the point that by the time Hosea came onto the scene to prophesy, the people in Israel, in the northern ten tribes, were worshiping false gods loving false gods. And in the mind of God himself, these relationships with false gods were tantamount to an adulterous uh, relationship that a wife was engaging with illicit lovers. And so God here, through the prophet Hosea, is going to express the great sorrow of the one-sided love that he is is ex- has expressed towards the people of Israel. Not only the one-sided love, but also the one-sided faithfulness of God in this marital relationship. And so it's a beautiful book that describes to us the devotion of God to his bride. And even though we are a different kind of bride and that we are not the nation of Israel, but we are the church, the bride of Christ, it speaks to us resoundingly concerning the kind of devotion that God has towards us, that Christ has towards us, but also that we long to have uh, towards him. Now, the prophet Hosea has often been called the Northern Kingdom's Jeremiah. You might remember that after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And because of his harsh ways with the people of Israel, a man named Jeroboam took the 10 northern tribes to himself and they began to basically ultimately create their own separate and distinct uh, kingdom. They, th- there was the north and there was the south. And so you have a long succession of kings in the north and kings in the south. Now, the north did not have Jerusalem. Therefore, they did not have the temple. Therefore, they did not have the biblical way in which to worship the Lord. And so eventually, over time, they introduced idolatry and, and uh, the, the more minor versions of idolatry that they introduced at the beginning gave way to full-blown idolatry. And so just as Jeremiah eventually came to the south and prophesied to the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, before King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came to take them into captivity, so Hosea, uh, years before Jeremiah, came to the north to uh, prophesy to them about their coming destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. Uh, So, uh, an incredible book. Now, uh, it says in verse 1 that the word of the Lord that came 
to Hosea. Uh, A beautiful description of how it worked for these prophets, the word of the Lord simply arriving to them. And Hosea's name means salvation. And so the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of, and now we have the listing of four separate kings of the southern kingdom in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And this word came to Hosea in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, the thing is, is that uh, for Hosea to have prophesied during the duration of all four or at least parts of the four kings in Judah that are mentioned there in verse one, he would have prophesied in uh, much more than simply the days of Jeroboam, the king of the north. So during the reign of the four Judean kings mentioned in verse 1, there were six kings who followed the Jeroboam that is mentioned here uh, in verse 1. Zechariah, Shalom, uh, Menahim, Pekahiah, Pekah, Hoshea being the final uh, king. And Hosea would have prophesied during all of their uh, reigns. And so the book of Hosea, these 14 chapters, represents approximately 40 years of prophetic ministry. Just a powerful uh, thing. And so uh, these are, now we have the date of this prophecy. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So now in verse 2 and 3, we're reading of the difficult calling uh, that was placed upon Hosea's life. Now on one hand, this was a highly prophetic uh for the people of Israel kind of role. God would ask his prophets to do uh, various things that uh, you're not going to see repeated in the church era, but they were very, very extreme. These men lived lives that were exemplary and not just in the sense that they were righteous men, but that God would oftentimes make an example of their lives. And God is going to do that here through Hosea's marriage to uh, Gomer. Now, there is a little bit of debate about Gomer's premarital uh, experience. Now, some think that she was living in prostitution when Hosea then went and married her. Some also think, secondly, that uh, she's a picture of a, a typical young Israelite woman who had given herself to the Canaanite pagan sexual practices of the day who then Hosea married uh, and then others believe that she was pure and righteous and a normal young woman at the time that she married Hosea but then as time went on she developed a wandering heart and became such a wanderer that not only did she commit adultery, but she actually gave herself to a life of prostitution. My personal opinion is that it's this last uh, category that is uh, accurate. It seems to fit the uh, context and the story the best. Here you have God 
pulling a young bride out of Egypt for himself. They become unified. They are covenanted uh, together uh, and they become his people. He becomes their God. But then slowly but surely over time, a wandering heart creeps into the nation of Israel and they eventually give themselves to an unfaithful uh, kind of worship practice. And I think it just simply bids the question because here is God saying, this is going to be the description or a picture of what my relationship with the people of Israel is like. It begs the question of, am I a man that is faithful to the Lord? You know, what, what, what kind of relationship does he have with me? Am, am I, am I, uh, you know, constant with the Lord? Am I faithful to the Lord? Now, obviously, there's a one-sided nature in any relationship with God. The love of Christ flowing from the cross of Christ will never be fully reciprocated by mankind. We cannot uh, pay the Lord back in any way, shape, or form. His love is greater. We love him because he first loved us. The question isn't, do I love him as much as he loves me? The question is, do I love him? Am I loving him or am I giving myself purposefully to that which is harming my relationship with the Lord. And the Lord says that the reason that I want you to do this, uh, Hosea, is because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so as God's prophet Hosea was going to illustrate the experience of God, but not only would he illustrate it, think about this, as God's prophet Hosea was going to experience the pain of God. And some of you are probably serving the Lord, and maybe you've experienced some small snippets or small tastes of the pain that God goes through in experiencing that one-sided uh, relationship. Uh, the you know, a wandering of the human heart. And as you've watched that and per perhaps tried to minister through that, maybe it's lukewarmness that you're battling against. Maybe it's apathy that you're battling against, a lack of passion for the gospel that you're battling against. And as, as you go through that battle, it's important, I think, to realize this is an experience that God has on a much more uh, intense level than I will ever experience uh, in this life. Paul the Apostle, enlisting his trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, said in verse 28, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. There was just this concern within his heart. And so if that's a concern that is yours, you're experiencing, I think, a little bit of the the, the sense that God was experiencing. And so the Lord tells Hosea why he is to take Gomer and why he's to experience this kind of brokenness uh, in his marriage. And the Lord said to him, verse 4, after she conceived a son and uh, had a child, the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom 
of the house of Israel. Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, uh, this is a very interesting prophecy uh, from uh, the Lord. Uh, basically, what you have here in the northern kingdom are the, the this long line of kings. There was originally a king named Jeroboam. He was the one who pulled away from Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam. So very near the reigns of Solomon and the reign uh, before Solomon of David. So Israel and their uh, line of kings was very fresh at that point. And Jeroboam started a new line of kings in the north. Now, years later, uh, instigated by Elisha the prophet, there was a man named Jehu whom Elisha prophesied to that he would uh, end the line of that original Jeroboam and that he would start his own new line and that Jehu would from, from him would, would now come the future kings in northern Israel. The problem, however, is that when Jehu did take the kingdom from the line of Jeroboam, it was an incredibly violent, uh, bloodshedding kind of, uh, uh, action that happened uh, in the town uh, of Jezreel. And so it's as if God is saying to uh, all of the kings uh, there in that time that Hosea was prophesying to, who were from the violent line of Jehu, he's saying, I haven't forgotten your roots. Your kingly line is rooted not just in the prophecy that you would take this kingly line, but unfortunately, grave violence. And I'm going to judge you for that grave violence he is announcing to them. So much so in verse 5, that on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And it appears here that uh, the Assyrians uh, would would come and when they were when they finally defeated uh, the northern kingdoms, the, the kingdom of Israel, it would actually happen here in this valley of Jezreel. And so a stern warning. It's, it's as if God is saying, listen, you think that I've forgotten. You think that I didn't see this uh, brutal uh, way in which you handled the house of Jehu, but I saw it or excuse me, the house of uh, Jeroboam, but I saw it, I observed it, I've seen it. And now, uh, years later, I'm here to judge it. And so that was what the name of Hosea's first son was meant to to signify. She conceived again, verse 6, and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. So, next, Hosea and Gomer have a daughter together. Her name is supposed to be Lo-Ruhama, or as we see it here, uh, No Mercy is the interpretation. So, she's to be named no mercy or no love. She is not uh, loved. And 
the Lord here in this prophecy announces that, listen, the mercy that I've been extending you there in the north, and God had been very patient. He had been very merciful, which means that he had been withholding from them a judgment that they rightfully deserved. He'd been withholding from them. And so he's He's saying, I've been merciful for so long, but I will no longer be merciful. In the south, in Judah, he announces, they're going to survive a little longer. I'm going to extend mercy to them, but not in the north. It is time for you to be judged. And so that's what the second child, this first daughter, uh, signified uh, in the family of Hosea and Gomer. And then in verse 8, he says, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. So they had a son named Jezreel, a daughter named no mercy. And after no mercy was weaned, they had a third child, a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. And so uh, the name Lo Ami or not my people. And what you have here is this people who were to be, were supposed to be in a covenant relationship with God who had departed from the Lord going after other gods. Therefore, God is saying, I'm now disowning you as my people. I will no longer be your God. So uh, you're not going to receive mercy from me any longer. Uh, I'm going to bring down judgment upon you but I'm actually going to disown myself uh, from you or you from me. Yet, in verse 10, and this is a beautiful promise that the Lord makes in the midst of all of this catastrophe, all of these warnings concerning coming judgment. He says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. And so this tells us that even though God is going to pull back his mercy and pull back his uh, relationship with the people of Israel and that he's going to remember them there in the north for their violent history. He's saying, still, however, I'm going to remember the covenant that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so God speaks of a future day of full restoration. And you have to notice a couple of the ingredients. It speaks of the two kingdoms, the one in the north and 10 northern tribes and the one in the south, Judah and Benjamin, being united under one uh, king. And that one king would uh, be a descendant of David himself. One Davidic monarch uh, would signify their return to the promised land. And so the number of their children will be absolutely innumerable. It will be a beautiful thing. And I think many of these prophecies are uh, yet future in their anticipation, I believe much of this will be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Christ uh, there in Revelation chapter 20. Now, once the family was established in chapter 2, 
God speaks through Hosea, tells him what to say and how to act next. And basically, he's going to highlight the sin of the people of Israel uh, that they had given themselves to spiritual adultery. He says, say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Now, again, this is a word of hope. Absolutely, a word of hope, because those who had been named no mercy and those who had been named not my people, uh, they're to have hope. God says, tell them you actually are my people and tell the sisters you actually have received mercy. Uh, So again, hope is what should be there for the people of Israel. And anytime that there is the prophetic word of the Lord that warns God's people And then a gap from the warning to the time of actual execution of judgment or the uh, time where you're coming under the discipline of God, discipline or the word of the Lord concerning future discipline and judgment is actually uh, a great instrument of hope because uh, you're still alive. You have not been slain. There is still the possibility of repentance And where there is the possibility of repentance, there is the possibility of God's grace and entering into that restorative relationship with him uh, once again. And so sometimes people uh, enter into such despair, they think there's no way for them to come back to the Lord. But even these people with their grave sin against the Lord, uh, they're to know you actually can have mercy, you actually can be my people. Plead with your mother, he says, plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband that she and tell her to put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. And so God gives a stern warning and he says, listen, these people, they're not behaving like my wife or bride any longer, and I can no longer operate as her husband. Now, this likely isn't a formal divorce that God is giving to the people of Israel at this point, but it's God initiating ultimate reconciliation, saying, this is not how a husband and a wife operate. She needs to, he says, put away her whoring from her face. Now, the thing about Israel at this time is that they had uh, really definitely given themselves over to uh, the uh, Canaanite practices of going up to the hillsides and uh, having sexual experiences underneath the trees that were designed to uh, appease the fertility gods and uh, the gods of the crops and all of that. And uh, this was whoring uh, and adultery uh, in you know, in their actual physical act, but also before the Lord spiritually. And the truth is that God is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And uh, this, in one sense, uh, section of Hosea is is their version of the book of James chapter 4, where we hear in verse 4 and 5, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, 
Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made dwell in us? And so when you give yourself to sin, when you give yourself to unrighteousness, you are are actually making yourself a friend of the world and an enemy of God and stirring up jealousy in the heart of God towards your life. Now, God says in verse 3, to Hosea, he says, you know, give this warning, lest, verse 3, I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. And so this is a severe judgment that God Uh, is promising for the people of Israel if they persist in these adulterous relationships. And, And one of the things that we discover is that sin against the Lord is one of the most, uh, dry producing actions in our lives. And he says here, you know, she's going to actually become parched and killed with thirst upon her children. Verse four, also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So she had this shameful attitude. And the reason for this severe judgment is found right there. She said these things which led her to a shameful life and action. Therefore, and now here we have God describing the judgment, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but not find them. And so God promises a a way or a path or a hedge with thorns. In other words, God says, I'm going to make your way difficult. And again, this is the grace of the Lord to not allow us to just pursue the life of sin uh, unencumbered. But he says, I'm going to make it difficult for you. You shall pursue your lovers, but not overtake them. There's an emptiness that is described there. Then she shall say, verse seven, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And the thing about want and dryness is that they are often the very tools that God is going to use to fix your heart. You know, the, the sense where of, of, of no satisfaction in pursuing a particular forbidden relationship or forbidden activity. And as you pursue them, when you come up dry and empty and without, without a fulfillment, uh, that is, in one sense, the action of the Lord in producing that dryness within so that you will, as Gomer said, return to your first husband and say, it was better for me then than now. And uh, so again, this is a good perspective. And for us, life is always strongest when we are only in the worship of God. And she did not know, verse 8, that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, 
and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. Here the Lord announces something in his judgment upon the people of Israel. He says, they don't understand that when they ate the grain or drank the wine or uh, used the oil, they don't understand that the silver and the gold, they don't understand that I was the one who gave them all of those elements. And they took those elements and they used them in the worship of Baal. And when they worshiped Baal, what they were asking for was for grain and wine and oil. They were asking for Baal to bless them when God himself was the source of their blessing. And so God announces to them here, he says, I'm going to take those things away from you and here's what I'm going to do in your lives. And the judgment is very simple, but very complete, very thorough. The repeated phrase in verse 9 to 13 is, I will, I will. In verse 9, he says, I will uh, put an end to, uh, or I will take back my grain, my wine, my wool, and my flax. In other words, God is saying, I am going to touch and halt your provision as a people. In verse 10, he says, I'm going to uncover her lewdness. And so I think that speaks to us of the anonymous or private nature of their sin will also come to an end and their sin will be exposed. In verse 11, we have him saying, I'll put an end to mirth, feasts, new moons, Sabbaths, and appointed feasts. And so the celebratory rejoicing is going to also end. It will become a joyless nation. And in verse 12 and 13, he says, I'm going to lay waste your vines and fig trees. I'm going to punish you for the feast days of the Baals. And so the wrath of God, the punishment, the discipline of God coming upon the nation of Israel. And so God here through the prophet Hosea has told the people of Israel of what will come, especially if they do not uh, get right with the Lord and repent of their sin, that days of desolation are in their future if they persist in this rebellion against God. Now there is grace, which we'll see in the words and phrases to come, but the warning is severe. Let us walk with God with a true and a pure heart. God bless you. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.